So back in 19, 1914, <laughs> 2014, I was at a, um, so really old, 2014, I happened to be at a conference in Texas, you know, and in Texas, I, everything's big, houses are big, you know, big plots of land and churches are huge. And uh, we went out there with a, a group of people from Parkway, and there was a speaker who spoke, very well-known, he's an author, we've even read one of his books. And um, anyway, in the middle of his message, he, he told us about this family moment when he and his family took this picture and posted it to Facebook. And um, he said that the picture is one of the best pictures of his family, you know, it's one of those rare occasions when everybody's actually kind of smiling, nobody's eyes are closed. And you post something like that to Facebook, and because he's a very popular, well-known guy, you know, I'm, I can only imagine there are thousands of likes, you know. Um, people saying things like, wow, you have such a beautiful family, or man, you just look like you're, you're so happy, blah, blah, blah. Um, well, in the middle of that message, after he said that this is one of the best, you know, pictures ever that we took of our family, he, he let us know, like, the backstory of what was going on around that picture. And he said that, you know, he and his wife were in the middle of a fight and the kids were upset. And, and so they like kind of forced together this, this, this pose. Can you imagine? You know, it's like, all right, get over here and you're going to look happy. I want you to smile when I say cheese and keep your eyes open, right? Well, in sharing that, what he was saying was that that moment um, when they faked the picture and then posted it, it, it really wasn't congruent. That is, it was, it was giving an impression or um, a perception that wasn't really true of, of that particular moment. And what's, what's sad about that particular part of his speech was that it was almost an omen. Because during that time and slightly after, it was found out that he was cheating on his wife, um, which ended in him losing his wife, breaking his family, and losing his church. It is so easy for us to clean the outside of the cup, right? Jesus said, it's, you clean the outside of the cup, that's, you know, coffee cup. That's the part where everybody can see. But that's not really what matters is the outside of the cup because that's not where the liquid goes. It's on the inside of the cup. And if on the outside you, you make everything look good, but on the inside it's like this moldy, rotten coffee that you see sometimes around the church. <laughs> yeah. Then, then what's the point? It's, it's just perception. It's just, just image. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, things are disintegrating. That, of course, it happens. It happens in families. It happens in marriages. Um, we want people to think the best of us, and so we clean the outside of the coffee cup. But meanwhile, what's behind closed doors and in private is, is something very different. And um, that happens in churches, too. You know, we do our absolute best to market the friendliest face possible. I have never been on a, a, a church website where I saw people frowning, yeah. ever. I've never seen a picture of a funeral, uh, never seen a picture of people weeping, just the cheerier side of Sears, if you know what I mean. But that's not, that's not really real life. And oftentimes, you know, we, 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 we see things from the outside because we are fascinated by perception. We want to market ourselves as better than we are, and we easily do it as families. We easily do it as churches. You can almost see it now. You know, someone looking through Parkway Facebook going, oh, look at the small group of leaders, and the small groups, they look so happy, and they're playing, they're, they're studying the Bible, and they're playing Monopoly, and they barbecue ribs at that church. It's like utterly amazing. 
There's nothing wrong with barbecue and ribs or playing Monopoly or studying the Bible. There's nothing wrong with pictures. They may convey the truth. But in our image-oriented society where, we, where, where they say perception is everything, we do well to stop and pause and ask ourselves, is it real? Is it show or is it substance? So this morning what I want to do is I, I want to kind of strip everything away and I want to ask, what, what does it mean to really be family? Um, what does it mean to be a community as defined not by um, our culture but by the Bible itself? What does it mean to be brother to brother, sister to sister? That's, that's the question. What does it mean to be family? Now, um, I know that most of us know in this room, at least intellectually, that we were never meant to walk this pilgrimage alone. Like we are on a pilgrimage, we're on a journey, and we're on a journey home, and God designed us to be together. And I think most, most of us grasp that, um, that we absolutely need each other. And to think that we can somehow be successful in the Christian life by ourselves, following Jesus and growing, it's kind of like thinking you're going to win the Super Bowl with one player. God designed us to be a team. He designed us to be a body. He designed us to be a covenant family. Covenanted to God and bound and covenanted to each other. The question is, what does that look like? If you get rid of the lights, I mean, not turn off the lights, but just kind of get rid of the trappings that we come to know as church. Get rid of projection screens. Get rid of instruments and pianos and drums and get rid of these pews. Get rid of the TV and the technology. Get rid of my iPhone. What does it mean to be a family? And what does it mean to be a healthy family? What does it mean to have something inside the cup that's not dirty, but something that's healthy and vibrant? That's, that's the question. And I want Philippians 2 to be our guide um, as we consider it. Because in it, I believe Paul lays out the, like the disease that easily eats away at the relational fabric of a family, the disease. He also gives us two vivid examples of what it looks like to be a teammate, a team player, what it looks like to be a family member. And then finally, I'm going to end with the motivation. How do we get there? The first part is, is, is the disease. And I'm going to spend a little bit more time on the disease because if we don't isolate what the disease is, we'll never look for the cure. If we don't detect any of this disease in us, then you're going to go to sleep for the second part. But if it's in here, if it's something that has made its way into the sinew of our church or your family, then we need to know it so that we can make some changes. So the first part is just what I've called the, the disease. If you read between the lines of the book of Philippians, um, you get the sense that there, there are some family issues going on. The church is a family. Um, it's not a structure. It is a family. That there are, there are some family issues going on, um, some things pulling at the fabric, um, some division going on, which is probably why Paul speaks at the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2, to, uh, tells them to like, be of one mind, implying that they're not of one mind. Or he says, be of one spirit, suggesting that they are fragmenting um, or be of the same mind, chapter 2. All of that conveys a sense that maybe there were some family issues going on, that things behind closed doors weren't as good as maybe it looked on Facebook. And then in chapter 4, at the very beginning, he, he addresses two women by name who aren't getting along. I, I just, as a side note, I can't imagine Paul 
naming me in a letter that was going to last for 2,000 years. Can you imagine? <coughs> you guys need to get along. So all of this leads us to believe that there is a sense of, like, there's some family issues, like the family's kind of pulling apart. And I believe underneath that, like, primarily, if you will, the root of the disease is, is and it can go by different names. We call it selfishness. You could call it self-interest, putting your needs or your interests above everybody else's. Like, that is like the, the prideful core of what's causing this family issue. And you can sense it in what he says in the beginning of chapter 2. He says, do nothing from rivalry. <laughs> and anytime you have a rival, you're trying to dominate. You're putting yourself first. Or conceit, that's putting yourself first. And he flips it and tells them how they're supposed to act, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In other words, put yourself in second position. Verse 4. Again, very similar. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, which is easy, everybody does that, but also to the interests of others. And you put those two verses together, we're actually supposed to care about the needs and um, issues of others before our, our, ourselves. And then he brings it up again in the middle of the chapter, <coughs> excuse me, where he's speaking of his own colleagues, like he had this missionary band of people that he'd go around with, and, and apparently some, have, some had gone off the rails. And he describes them this way. He says, they seek, they all seek their own interests. In other words, they have wandered off course. Suggesting that this is, the, this is kind of the disease. It's a disease that, that begins to disintegrate relational integrity. This whole idea of self-centeredness or putting your own needs first above other people. Um, it was what, what caused the, the disintegration in the Garden of Eden when they put their own desires before the will of God and made the choice. And it continues to just work its way into family relationships, husband, wife, and children. Work its way into relationships with a church. And you tell me, if you're a wife... And you have spent all day doing laundry, helping the kids with their homework, you've been mopping the floors, you've made dinner, you've set the table, put the meal on the table, cleared the dishes, washed the dishes, and your husband is sitting down with his feet up watching a four-hour football game after work. You tell me, how well does that go for you, ladies? Thank you. You're in trouble. Does that make for relational unity? No, it tears it apart. It's like... I'm doing everything, right? It's, it, it is. It very much is like this, like a, like, like a virus that all of us carry within us. You know, if they say if you have the chicken pox, well, then you may not have the chicken pox forever, but you'll still have the virus in you. And if you're older and you're in a depleted state, you can actually get shingles, right? Well, every one of us carries this selfish gene, this virus in us that can come out at any time. And as I said, it's like termites. It just eats away at the foundation of your family, and kind of like dry rot, just begins to weaken the structures of love. And if you're not careful, it can bring the whole house down. True of family, true of church family. Now, you're probably listening to me going, well, that, that's not me. And the reason you're, you're saying that or thinking that is because we tend to think in extremes, don't we? <laughs> like, when you think of um, selfishness or conceit or self-centeredness, you know, things like, Ebenezer Scrooge comes to mind, right? Well, I'm not like Ebenezer Scrooge. Or if you're a Disney fan like I am, remember Beauty and the Beast? You remember Gaston? <laughs> no one's slick like Gaston. No one's quick like Gaston. And I'll keep my day job. 
you know, it's full of himself, right? That's who we think of. I'm not like that. I'm not like Scrooge. I'm not like Gaston. And I'm not like the person on Instagram who loves to post selfies wearing workout gear showing off they have 1% body fat. You know what I'm talking about. It's like, that person is so full of themselves, just want to show that they have an eight-pack, like, right? So we think in extremes, and I'm not that extreme, so Dan, you're not talking to me. Actually, it's not me talking to you. That's, the Lord's not talking to me. We think in extremes, and we let ourselves off the hook. It's called justification by way of comparison. Justification by way of comparison. The thing about human pride and self-interest, putting yourself first, is that it's, it's really difficult to detect in yourself. You can detect it in others, but to detect it in yourself. It's like a, think of it like a chameleon. It likes to blend in where you can't really see where it exists. And if you're thinking in extremes and you are blind to what's happening in yourself, you can easily think, I don't have this disease. Here are some thoughts for you that I want you to consider and just kind of evaluate where you are in this list of potential criteria for or expressions of self-centeredness. The need to always be right. The need to always be right either comes out of a sense of insecurity or it comes from a sense of superiority, either which it's about you. The inability to forgive typically from an elevated sense of moral superiority. I would never do that, so I can't forgive you. In that case, the lack of forgiveness or inability to forgive is about you. The compulsion to advertise a fake life, to make your um, social media world better than you really are. Four, that's all about you. Um, the need to criticize others more skilled than yourself. Um, again, a source of envy, which is all about you. The chronic desire to complain. So absorbed in your own situation and your own miserable circumstances that that's all you can focus on. You can't focus on anybody else. And so what does that mean? It's all about you. The unwillingness to take a risk when you know you should. You know you need to do something, but you shy away from it for sake of your own personal maybe survival or to minimize pain, or to choose comfort over sacrifice. These are just some subtle ways to kind of bring out, wait a second, maybe I do struggle with this. Maybe this is at some level infecting my, my relationships, my husband, my children, and my church family. These are the kind of things that we have to be alert to and go, okay, Lord, I do have this issue. And it's made worse by the fact that we live in what people have called the consumer culture, with consumer attitudes, right? Like, the, the whole wind, like, the world in which we live, the conversations, the commercials, everything appeals to your self-interest. Everything does. At what was once, like, putting yourself first considered to be a, a, a sin is now considered almost a virtue, so that you have, like, are entitled to be happy or entitled to be satisfied or entitled to a better product. It appeals to the sense of self-interest. And we're conditioned by it out in the marketplace. And so what happens is we end up then bringing it into the relationships. And again, that means that you are first. And it infects not just your family, it infects the church. 
There's a researcher and psychologist by the name of uh, Bill Doherty um, who speaks to this issue as it relates to the marriage relationship. And I think you can extrapolate and say the church relationship or family relationship. He writes this. He says, and psychologists aren't always wrong, by the way. Like, he nails this right on the head. He says, social historians have shown how psychological individualism has been growing in our nation for more than a century. That is me, individualistic. Its current form is what I call the consumer attitude, a combination of the human potential movement of the 1970s with its focus on personal growth and the market values of the 1980s and 1990s with their focus on personal entitlement and cutting your losses and moving on if you are not satisfied. If you're not satisfied, move on. And he takes that in the next paragraph and presses it into marriage. If you're not satisfied, move on. He says, although it lurks inside nearly every married person who lives in our culture, the consumer attitude usually does not, does not become apparent until we come face-to-face with our disappointments about our marriage and about our mate. That's when we start to ask ourselves, is this marriage meeting my needs? And am I getting enough back for what I'm putting into this marriage? You know, the happy-go-lucky at the altar, you know, stars in people's eyes when they say yes until death do us part, and then all of a sudden you run into speed bumps and you're like, wait a second. That's what he's saying. Then you start to realize and ask the questions, wait, is this worth it? Am I happy? And if I'm not, maybe I should move on. That is all about the self. And it is a contamination of relationship in church. We bring it into the church too. Same idea. So, hypothesis. No, hypothetical situation. So, sweetheart, I think maybe we should join a small group. Well, okay, if we have to. It's husband, typical response, going to small group. You know, I really think we need to find somebody like... Um, that has kids like us, and, and, and let's find somebody that actually has, like, soup or food before, um, before, the, before small group, and um, preferably people we connect and click with. Um, so let's go shopping for a small group. And I know I'm treading on some seriously sensitive territory right here. I'll release the tension a little bit, but, or, or, and this is true, I think, across California. Do you know that when it rains, attendance at the community of faith goes down? When it's sunny, it gets big. It's like, oh, pull the you know, cover over your head. Like, oh, it's raining outside. I'm going back to bed. At that moment, when you're making that choice, it's, is it about, hey, I want to show up and I want to encourage somebody? Or is it about, oh, I just need a couple more, couple more hours sleep because Californians hate rain and it depresses us, so I'm just going to cover myself. There's nothing wrong, or, or, you know, church. Hey, so does your ch- church family have a, does it have a bicycling ministry? Because we like to bike. And it's really important to us that we have bike, bicycling ministry. And it's, it's like you're doing a shopping list. Now, again, let me release, release a little bit of tension. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being judicious and discerning when it comes to choosing a small group or a church family to be a part of. I think you should be very judicious. But here's the thing. If the governing principle of our choices is what's in it for me, let me say that again. If the governing principle of our choices is, does this meet my wants? 
then it seems like we're off because the governing principle by which we should make our choices should be first and foremost, all right, Lord, where do you want me? Like, and, and with an honest prayer, not a prayer that justifies you doing whatever you want to do. Because sometimes people say, I prayed about it, now I want to do what I want to do. So I got like an excuse to, it's the Lord's will. Rather than just say, hey, all right, Lord, where do you want me? Am I, am I gonna get a, are we going to grow more as a family by being in a place that has everything or has little? Um, Lord, where do you want me? Where, where can I make the biggest impact for your sake of your kingdom? That's, instead of thinking what's in it for me, we're thinking, Lord, where do you want me? Sometimes it's not in a great place. God sends Paul back to Jerusalem. He goes back to Jerusalem knowing full well he's going to be arrested and imprisoned. It's like, at the end of the day, we're disciples. We are supposed to follow the leadership of the Spirit and Jesus in our lives. That ought to be the governing principle. Sometimes it'll mean you're in a group that's, hey, everybody fits. Other times, you're going to find yourself in a group of people that aren't like you, and it's going to force you to grow in ways that you wouldn't have grown if you'd been in a homogenous group of people. So I'm simply saying, it's, 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 we have to be careful to recognize it. It is here. It's, it's, it's out in the world. It's, it's swirling, and it's, it's alive, and we just got to be careful to say as Christians, wait a second, perception, it's not all about perception. It's about the substance. Like, who are we? So there you have the disease, and to some extent, we have to analyze ourselves. Do I have this, and is this affecting me? Switching to the positive. If that's the disease, then Paul gives us two stellar examples of what it looks like to be, if you will, a church family member or to be a team member, to be part of a community that God has woven together. He holds up two of his right hand, I guess it would be a left and a right hand man, his two lieutenants, Timothy and Epaphroditus, two amazing helpers in his ministry. Now the question is, why does he tell us about Timothy and Epaphroditus in the middle of the letter and not at the end of the letter? Typically, if he's, when Paul makes plans, he's like, hey, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to send Luke to you. Usually he puts that at the end of his letters, but here he, mysteriously enough, puts it in the middle. So why these two stellar examples in the middle of a letter where people are dealing with family issues brought on by self-interest? And I think it's because it's pastoral. He's, we, we, need, we need tangible flesh and blood examples to follow. So he says, here's Timothy, here's Epaphroditus. These guys are teammates. These guys are family members. And we can discern like marks of, of, of healthy family in their, in their lives. Timothy, for example. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. And let me just stop there. The reason he's hoping to send Timothy, his lieutenant, is because when Paul writes this, he's in prison. He cares enough, despite the fact that he is confined in in a prison, to write a letter and then send people because he cares that much. So that I too may be cheered by news of you. He cares that much. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all, that is my other colleagues who have deserted me, seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, that he's a man of character, he's been proven on the battlefield. How, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. There's several, like, marks or 
expressions of what it means to be a teammate in this, and I've underlined them. One of the marks of somebody who's, who's a healthy teammate slash family member is someone who genuinely cares for the well-being of others. Like, they care. That's a hard word to define with words. It's a better word to feel with analogy. Like, to be concerned about is to care about. To care about is to feel an inner weight or burden. It's like an ache in your heart. And anybody who's a parent knows what that ache, that concern, that burden feels like. If you have a child with a chronic disease, it's like always there. It's, it drives you to pray. It drives you to encourage, pick up the phone, ask if they're okay. It's this inner burden or weight. Or if you have a child who has wandered away from the Lord, that weight never disappears, as many of you know. It's just this nagging concern. And he's saying one of the marks of a good teammate is this burden, this concern for the well-being of other people. And it's not just a performance. He says it's genuine. It's not going through the motions because you'll be looked at by other people as a caring person. It's like, no, I have a legitimate burden for you from the inside for the well-being of those people placed around you. That is a mark of a healthy church family. That is a mark of a healthy individual, a teammate, of someone who has a genuine burden, concern for the people around you that God puts in your life. Not just that, but in the next underlined, he, in, in providing reason as to why Timothy is such a great guy, he also says, for they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. That is, they don't seek the interests of Jesus Christ. Like Timothy does is the implication. Like his, his um, Timothy's interests of his heart align with Jesus' interests of his heart. That's a good teammate. That Timothy wouldn't walk in here and go, oh my goodness, the person running the slides is super slow. That really bothers me. Or you get the point. It's... What, is, what, what, what was Christ passionate about? He was passionate about, his interests were that we love each other sacrificially, enduringly, that we forgive each other, that we humble ourselves and confess to each other, that we are poor in spirit and not haughty, that we care for the needs of others. I mean, we could make the list pretty long, and the question is, does your heart match Christ's heart? And that's exactly what Timothy was. He was a, he was a person whose, whose interests, whose values aligned with Jesus' values. And when you have that alignment, then, then you are a good teammate. If not, then you end up, again, putting your needs first. Or the third mark, the first one, just that genuine concern for those around you. That is a, that is a family member. Someone whose, whose interests are aligned with Christ's interests. That is a good team member. That is a good family member. And the third one here is this, it's just gospel-centered. Uh, he says, he's proven his worth. He served with me in the gospel. Like the gospel, as you know and yet don't know, is the power of God into salvation. It is what Jesus came to do in dying so that we could be pardoned and rising again to defeat death and give us hope of eternal life. But that message, 
that was the center of Paul's life and center of Timothy's message. Uh, life was, it's, it's what brings a person to faith, what brings a person into salvation, what continues to help that person grow, which means he had a passion to see, like, the good news and all of its implications, like, saturating the church. That's what you should be passionate about. That's what we should be passionate about. As important as the aesthetics are, and they have a place, good sounding guitars that are in tune and slides that move on time, those are not the substance. The passion is for the good news of Jesus and what it can do in the life of a family. So those are, those are three marks from, from Timothy's life. Like, and ask yourself, do, do, these, do these characterize me? Do, do I care for the genuine, do I have this burden for the well-being of other people? Um, are my interests aligned with Christ's? And am I passionate about the gospel as the center of the church? And then one more taken from Epaphroditus, and you could, we could spend a long time in this, but I'm just going to pick out one. I, I love this. He describes this other lieutenant as this. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Side note, his parents were probably worshipers of Aphrodite, which is why they named him this, Epaphroditus. But the gospel came into his life, revolutionized his life, and now he is on the right team. A missionary of Paul. Look how he describes him. My brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. Now you got to sense a bit of a progression. It's one thing to know that you have a brother, and it's good. But sometimes brothers can be lazy. You have any families that come in at Christmas, members, and you and your wife do all the work? Meanwhile, Bill, or if your name's Bill, Dave, sits on the couch, doesn't lift a finger. And you're like, well, come on, man. He's a pigeon. He says, this is Epaphroditus, my brother. But he's not just a brother. We're not just in the same family. No, he's working. He's right alongside me. His hands are getting dirty. He's in the, in the mix of it. Right alongside, helping me with my work. But he's not just a brother who's committed to working. The last one is, is like my fellow soldier. In other words, like he's in it to the point that he is in the heat of battle. He's a soldier. He's, he's taken on opposition. He's all in. That is, if you will, the fourth mark that I'm going to draw out is just to say, simply say he's fully engaged He's fully engaged. If there's one thing I know from reading war stories and battle stories, it's that there is a fraternal bond and affection and a, a forging together of lives on the battlefield when you're fighting side by side, back to back, taking on fire, and you come out the other side, and you know your family. Are you, like, engaged this isn't the kind of guy who sits on the sideline going, go Paul, go Paul, go Paul. Touchdown, touchdown. Go fight, win. No, it's like, he's like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm right next to you on the front line. We experience some of the depths of being covenant family when we are fighting the same enemy. Are you in the fight? So here you have these marks. Let's just, just call them core commitments of the heart. 
that I think define healthy church family, healthy family, healthy relationships. Now, it's the well-being of other people, having the same interests as Christ, being passionate about the gospel, and fully engaged in the fight. Fight for forgiveness, fight for love, fight for the gospel, fight against sin. How does this resonate with you? It's 2019, and my, my prayer is that we'll go deeper. It doesn't matter what we post on Facebook or the website. It doesn't matter what the outside of the cup looks like. It matters what's inside the cup. It's not the show. It's the substance. Now, how do we get there? I'll close with this. But don't tune me out because this is really the most important part. Okay, here are some ways that we're supposed to live. We're supposed to make progress on. As with almost every command of Paul, almost, I think in theory it would be always, the central motivation for the Christian life, like the the thing that really enables us to change and actually see these things developed and nurtured in our families and in our lives, is coming back to the center. It always comes back to the center, and Adam's message was about this, is uh, as you behold the glory of the Lord, you're transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And part of the glory of the Lord that transforms us is the glory of his humiliation. Of understanding to greater degrees the infinite distance between the heights of heaven and the horrors of the cross. And that's where he, that's his anchor example at the first part of chapter 2. And I just want, if, if you want to find a text to meditate on first in response to last week's message, start here. It'll change your life. You meditate on verses 5 through 11. Where he writes and he reminds us of the massive distance between the heights of heaven and the horrors of the cross. And just, it's like he takes us on a little tour to remind us that he was in the form of God. Jesus was in the form of God. He was fully divine and all that that implies. He's the one who stirred galaxies into motion. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He is not conceited, he is not putting himself first. But, verse 7, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. If you stopped right there, you go, and really like understood that, it'd be like, that's amazing. Like God would make a choice to get off the throne, come down, and actually take the form of a human with the limitations of humanity. And not just that... Paul would say, well, just wait, because it's not just that he's become human. It's like he's referred to as a slave. So, so we have God the sovereign, all sovereignty, becoming a slave. That right there is, like God did that for me? He became a slave? Yes. And, and we should be going, That's, who would do that? But wait, it gets better. Because it's not just that the sovereign becomes the slave, it's that the sovereign becomes the slave to bleed and die. Like, so we, the fully alive sovereign God has now become the dead sacrificial human. Yes. By the way, without ever ceasing to be God. But it gets better. And this is where meditation comes in. I love the word even. Even death on a cross. It's like, if that wasn't enough, 
Like, he was openly humiliated, stripped naked, and he was crucified as a horrible criminal. All for us, to make us family. And that contemplation of the glory of the humiliation of Jesus for our sake is nothing less than something powerful enough to melt the selfish heart and to turn it around so that we now can love others as Christ first loved us. That's the motivating factor. Why should we, you know, care about the well-being of others, feel that burden? Why should we align our interests with Christ? Why should we be passionate about the gospel? Why should we be fully engaged in the fight? Well, because of what he did. So I realize that in living this out, we're, we're going against the, the current and flow of culture. We are. We're renouncing what the world says is okay. But I think it's worth it for the sake of family. I think it's worth it, worth it for the sake of fellowship. I think it's worth it for the sake of the pilgrimage we're taking. And you know what? We're on this together, most of us, unless you leave here. Um, we're, I, I'm in this with you until I die or until you die. So let's make this pilgrimage together and let's, um, focusing on the Lord, um, allow ourselves to be people like Timothy and Epaphroditus who are fully engaged and care about the family. Amen? Father, we ask for grace this year, please, to um, just be different, to take the step forward and do something different, to not give in to the same routines or the same cycles or the same routines of, of, of habit, but allow us to step out and do something bolder, more courageous, um, more in line with who you are. I pray for your church body here, Lord. I just pray you'd um, help us not to, not to care so much about perception or image, but more importantly about the substance of who we are as a family. And I pray for those in our church right now who are feeling vulnerable or perhaps um, convicted by the fact that what people see on the outside isn't true on the inside. And I, I just pray you bring healing to families and marriages where that's the case this morning. In Christ's name, amen.